it's time to do something that we value around here. What's that? Open your Bibles, right? Open God's Word to Acts chapter 26. We are down to the last three sermons in Acts. And I don't know about you, but I have absolutely loved our time in this book. And the faith of Paul has continually overwhelmed me. And not just Paul, but earlier in the book, just the apostles who literally gave their lives. In particular with Paul, his willingness to endure so much suffering for the sake of Christ. His consistency in and not shying away from boldly proclaiming Christ is just absolutely inspiring. You know, what was it that led him to respond this way? How did he get to the place where he could write this in 2 Corinthians 4.17? For this light momentary affliction, consider that. Would we call what, light, what Paul experienced light and momentary? I wouldn't call it that. I mean, these are serious afflictions, and yet he's calling them light and momentary, and it's preparing for us. This was his perspective. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What would lead someone to say that? I know what it is. It was Jesus. He loved his Savior. He was overwhelmed at what Christ did for him, and Jesus was with everything to Paul. Jesus was worth suffering for. Nothing else compared to Christ. Paul was a person who understood his salvation. He understood what he was before Christ. He understood what it meant to come to Christ. And he knew what it meant to live for Christ after salvation. His, and his life looked completely different when Christ came in and rescued him. Not only this, but, but Paul then just didn't sit on the sidelines. He didn't like, okay, my life is taken care of. All my problems have been solved. My sins have been dealt with. So I'm going to go live happily ever after. No, then he gave the rest of his life full of suffering for the sake of advancing the gospel. This is a man who truly understood salvation. And this morning in Acts 26, we're going to get an understanding of our salvation. And I think it's vital for us to see the full picture here so that we can grasp how great and amazing Christ's salvation is for us. Not only that, my prayer is that this would lead us to a place where we are not afraid, we are unashamed to go share it in the dark places of this world. And so before we dive in this morning, let's just seek the Lord and ask him for his help this morning. Father, I thank you for your great salvation. Lord, we are here this morning. Those who have come to Christ, we are here not because of anything that we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us. And Lord, for those who are faint-hearted this morning, I pray that they would be encouraged and reminded of what you have saved us from. Lord, I pray for those who may be on the fence of they don't really fully understand their salvation or perhaps they think they're saved, but their life shows nothing that shows that's true. Would you open their eyes that they may behold the wondrous things from your word this morning? 
Lord, I pray that we would all leave change, having drawn near to you, having come to a deeper understanding of our salvation and having a fire lit in, lit in our hearts that would lead us to go and share the gospel with those around us. Father, we need your help this morning. Unless you open our eyes, we cannot behold your word. And so, God, would you do that this morning? We are desperate for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at the reality of living in a fallen world. Paul had to deal with corrupt people everywhere who didn't really care about the truth, and yet they stood for God. And the reality was for them is that it was their own foolishness that kept them from seeing the truth. They looked at Jesus and they stumbled over him. He was a stumbling block. He was foolishness because they couldn't grasp Jesus in light of their own glory that they were pursuing. They weren't pursuing the glory of the Lord. They were pursuing the glory of self. And their lives look completely different than that of Paul. And in chapter 26, we finally get to see Paul speak up and declare his testimony. And what we're going to walk through are four questions. Four questions that I want us to ponder in our own hearts in light of what we see here in Acts chapter 26. Here's the first question. Do you remember your life before salvation? Do you remember what you were like before God came and rescued you? Let's take a look at Paul's testimony here now as he begins to speak up. Verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So you see quickly here in Acts 26 that Paul is excited to have King Agrippa uh, to hear him. And since he, he would have known and been very familiar with the Jewish way of life, this would have been something King Agrippa was very familiar with and intimate with. And of course, Paul gives his testimony of how he was a very strict Pharisee. Like this was no secret as we see here. The people would have heard and known of Paul. And, and by the way, this has been 20 plus years since Paul had been converted. And yet, this was no unfamiliar person to the Jews. Like they knew who Paul was. 
Not only did they know the, his stance on Christ, but they knew what his life looked like before Christ. He was a highly respected Jewish leader back in his time. And in verse 8, he asked a very legitimate, good question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, if you remember, uh, there was a conversation going on. Uh, there was an argument broke out between the Sadducees and Pharisees because Paul brought up the reality of believing in the resurrection. And if you remember, the Pharisees were like, yes, Paul is the man. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, their tone changed because they spoke the same language and they agreed on the same thing. So all of a sudden, like, Paul's the man. He's, he's innocent. Like, Sadducees, you guys are the problem because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So he's asking those people who just a little while ago proclaimed that the resurrection is true. Like, Paul's like, how could that be unfathomable if you believe in the resurrection for Jesus who had been raised from the dead? But of course, they don't answer that. And here's the thing with Paul, though. He, when he, his approach to the crowd was one of understanding. Like, he's looking into the eyes of who he was 20 years before. He, he was not immune. He was not forgetful of his past. He remembers how he was responsible for approving the death of Christians. He remembers how he ran after them and tried to get them to blaspheme, how he had this raging fury inside of him because of those who stood for Christ. Paul was no stranger to his past. He was sensitive to what he had done. And in our salvation stories, I believe it is critical that we don't forget our pasts. Here's one reason why that is true. Remembering who we were before Christ gives us a sense of deep humility before God. Like, none of us can earn salvation. And the reality that we needed salvation shows that we are sinful people. And if we forget that, then we are not going to be very gracious Christians. Because we're going to expect the world to look like Jesus. When the world hates Jesus. And on the other side of this, there is no way for Paul to truly remember what he was like before Christ and then to continually live in pride after Christ saved him. Like, what is Paul going to boast in? He didn't seek after the Lord. He was on his way to Damascus when the Lord met him, and he was on his way to persecute more believers. Paul was blown away the fact that Jesus would save him. So he didn't approach the crowd from a place of having it all together. Rather, he approached them from a place of humility because he remembered his life before salvation. I wonder, how many of you remember your life before Christ? How many of you remember your sinfulness that did not pursue the Lord, that did not care for the Lord? When you talk with unbelievers and interact with those who are against the ways of the Lord, do you approach it humbly, remembering who you were? Understanding that it's only by God's grace are you standing on this side of salvation. Our salvation comes from the power of Christ, not from anything that we have done. Do you approach 
the world with humility or do you approach it with arrogance? Apart from the grace of God, we would all be an absolute mess. Do you understand that? Do you remember the mess that you were before Jesus came in and transformed your life? Perhaps you're like me, though, where, where God rescued you at a young age. I, I was saved around first or second grade. I don't really remember, but I, I remember the time frame. I remember praying, and I can look back, and I can see from the time of my, my childhood through now of God holding on to me, of God continually pursuing me, of God continually growing me to be more like Christ. It wasn't perfect, but yet I never just walked away and said, like, I'm done with you, God, forget you. That never happened. He kept clinging on to me. I can see that clearly. So it, it's hard for me to look back and think, I don't have this massive list of horrible sins. I used to want that. Anybody else like, like me, like you wish you had like, like horrible rap sheet? And then everybody I talked to who has the horrible rap sheet wishes they had the testimony where they didn't have to deal with all that sin. Well, here's my encouragement to you. So how does this fit for those who are saved at a young age? That means for me, I've had the Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart for 30 plus years. And yet, I can look back and see how sinful I've been. The time where I've allowed my anger to get out of control. The time of pride that thought I was something special. And yet, Christ did not abandon me. I mean, the, the unbeliever has a good reason why they're living the way they're living. They don't have the Spirit dwelling within them. But I had the Spirit dwelling within me, and yet I still committed sins against God. They may not be as bad as the worst sinners in the world, but yet I had the Spirit, and I was not living for the glory of God all the time, and yet Christ clings to me. So if you can't remember what life was like before salvation, consider God's grace on your life after it. Let that amaze you, that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Do you remember your life before salvation? Here's the second question. Do you understand what salvation is? Is it clear to you? Do you have a clear picture of what it is? Here, Paul goes into his conversion. Verse 12, follow with me. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So he's going after into foreign cities. He's going hard. He has this raging fury inside him, and the chief priests are cheering him on. At midday, verse 13, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul! Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
I think it's important as we look at the conversion of Paul that this interaction with Christ would have been a terrifying experience. Jesus didn't come to him and say, hey, Paul, you want to live your best life now? You want every day to be a Friday for you? Like I have a wonderful plan for your life of prosper and health and wealth. Is that, is that how Jesus comes to Paul? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, picture yourself in Paul's place. This bright light blinds him. He can't see, and then all of a sudden he hears this voice talking to him. This is terrifying. This is not something that we would want to experience. But I, I think it's worthy to understand how is Jesus coming to Paul? He's not coming to him with a wonderful plan. He's coming to say, Paul, you're a sinner. You have sinned against Almighty God. Salvation, if we want to understand our salvation, it starts with the fact that we have sinned against a perfect father, a perfect God. He's perfect in every way. And we have broken his law. And we are guilty before him. There's no sugarcoating here for Paul's life. Here's another reality. Paul was not seeking God out. As we already mentioned, he's on his way to persecute more Christians. He didn't have this journey to God. He didn't just have this, like, I was pursuing him and then God saved me. Like, he, he was lost. And yet God, in his mercy, sought after Paul and rescued him. Consider John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Galatians 1, 15, Paul said himself that God set him apart before he was born. This is why salvation is so humbling because there's nothing that we can do to boast in it. We can't do enough good works to get to the point where God would say, well, I love you now because you've done enough for me. No, we were hopeless. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, Titus 3, 5. Ephesians 2, for by grace we have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul understood this, and, it, and this made a tremendous mark on his life. He knew who he was apart from Christ. He never forgot it. And he knew how he was saved. Thus he was willing to go before people who were persecuting him and share the gospel. Let me ask you, do you understand salvation? Do you believe that you have sinned against the creator? And the only hope for you is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you could not live and then died on the cross for your sins, the death that you deserve. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that it's through your repentance of sin and placing your faith in Christ, you are saved. Do you understand that? We live in a very dangerous culture within some churches that don't fully understand what salvation is. And I fear, for some, have no clue. 
where we, we, we can get, people even share their testimonies, and they talk about, like, I had this experience, and I felt this warmth come through my body, and then God saved me, like, as if that's what you have to feel to have a warm fuzzy. Do you think Paul felt warm fuzzies when the light came on him, and Jesus is calling him, saying, you're persecuting me? Salvation is not a feeling. Salvation is coming to the reality of understanding we have sinned against a perfect God and we are guilty before him. And it's only by the sacrifice of Christ that we can be made right. I've also seen evangelists who just try so hard just to get a person to say a prayer. And if they say a prayer to ask Jesus in their heart, then they're saved. As if simply saying a prayer is what saves us. Can I, can I help you understand that just simply saying a prayer does not mean you are saved? Just saying words. I've heard testimony after testimony of people who were baptized, who thought they were saved, and they're getting baptized, quote-unquote, for a second time because that salvation wasn't real. Their parents said that they said a prayer, and then they said they were saved. Like, as parents, Nikki and I have committed, we will never say our kids 100%, you are saved. Rather, we'll say, if, you, if your heart understands your sinfulness before God and your heart leads you to say a prayer that repents of your sin because you're tired of it and you want to live for your Savior and you place your trust in Christ for salvation, if that's what your heart does, then the Scripture says you are saved, not just simply saying a prayer. I see so many people who get this wrong, and we need to genuinely ask ourselves, do I understand what salvation is. Do you understand? Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here. There's again, he's acknowledging the fact that he is there because of God's grace, not because of anything in him. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, we would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here's the third question. Does your life display the salvation you proclaim? Are you living out your salvation? Are you living out the faith that you say that you have in Christ? Is it apparent and the way that you are going about your every day. Here's what we see in this section. Paul lived what he proclaimed. His life matched his testimony of salvation. And I really want to key in on what he said to the disciples, how, how, he, how he preached discipleship. What were the things that he said? Look at the second half of verse 20 again. He preached to them saying that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Let your life display the salvation you proclaim. Here's what Martin Luther said. He said, 
He said the Christian life is the life of repentance. Here's what repentance is. Repentance, first of all, is not, I'm sorry, I messed up. That's what some Christians, like, that's what some people, like, think repentance is. Like, it's just saying that you're sorry. It's just feeling bad about your sin. You know what? There are plenty of people who felt bad about their sin and yet didn't change their life. I think of Judas. What did Judas do when he realized what he had done by selling Jesus over to the Jews? He went and hung himself. That's not repentance. That's sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Peter, on the other hand, denied Jesus three times. But what did Peter do? He repented. Repentance means you are heading one direction. You are living your life one way, and then all of a sudden you start walking and going the other direction. You're changing the way that you live. That's what he's saying. Like, like, repent of your sins, but then let your life show that you're repenting of your sins. So that means that your life looks different, not perfect. Here's what we must understand. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we walk in a straight line. Like, Jesus is over there. He's the one that we're pursuing, right? We all acknowledge on this side of heaven we're not going to get anywhere close to him, right? But yet we're still striving for it. So following Christ looks more like this, doesn't it? Like we're pursuing Christ, and, and then I get a little... Sidetrack, and then the Holy Spirit reminds me, yes, what I repent, I turn, I want to get, become more like you. And then sometimes we get a little sideways again, and we lose track, and maybe we take a couple steps back, and then the Holy Spirit draws us back. But, but notice where I'm at. If, if the world before Christ is over there, and Christ is here, there's progress. And this is, this is where we really have to dig deep, and this is where I fear many Christians are at. Like, is there a difference in your life? Paul's not saying, hey, come to Christ, say a prayer, and then eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want to because Christ has saved you. He's saying, no, now live for, live for the Savior that you love. Live for the Savior that died for you. So brothers and sisters who pro profess Christ, is your life different now than what it was the day that you came to Christ? Are you looking more and more like Jesus? Again, not perfectly, but are you making progress? If you're not making progress, then you are not performing de deeds in keeping with their repentance. And your repentance is more, nothing more than I felt bad for my sin. I felt sorry for it, but I didn't do anything about it. James 2.17 says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But here's a distinction we, we must make as believers to make sure we don't go sideways. What comes first? Faith or works? Faith. Faith comes and the works follow. If we, like the, the works follow because we have this new joy in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit who's convicting us, who's pointing us to the Savior and conforming us to the image of His Son. If we're not being conformed to the image of His Son, guess what? The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within you. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within you, guess what? You don't have salvation. So, brothers and sisters, does your life display the salvation that you proclaim? Are, not, not that we have to look like Paul, but Paul was a different man. His life looked differently. He had new joys. He had new pursuits. His life took a 180. How is your life looking? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life in an increasing matter. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If there's no evidence of fruit, if there's no evidence of progress, then you should seriously question if you are a genuine believer. And then if you do see the fruit, then praise the Father who is conforming you to the image of the Son. Does your life display the salvation you proclaim? Here's the last question. Is your heart for the lost despite their history? Is your heart for the lost despite their history? Look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So at this point, Festus stops everything and says, Paul, you're crazy. And Paul says, I, I, no, I'm not. I am completely in my right mind. I know exactly what I am saying. And he even expresses that King Agrippa understands too. Like Festus, king, the king knows this. And he, Paul's response to him is pretty bold to say this to the king. Look again at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So King Agrippa had a Jewish background. He knows what the prophets have said. And Paul's saying that he believes. And then the king sidesteps his question and instead asks him another question. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? But then look at the heart of Paul here. Look at his care and his desire for the people to repent of their sins. Verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What's he saying? He's like, oh, oh, that your eyes were open to see the beauty of what Christ can do. Oh, that you would experience repentance of sin and placing your faith in Christ and seeing what he can do to a broken man. Oh, oh, apart from these chains, that you could have the hope that I have. Do you feel the heart of Paul here? Do you hear it? He had one desire for all the people there. But notice his desire was not to be right. 
He wasn't looking for, to win an argument. I mean, even notice there in verses 30 through 32, they, the king and Bernice and the governor, they go aside and they're like, man, he's innocent. Agrippa says, he could have even been set free if, if he would have not appealed to Caesar. What? How could, how could Paul love these people? How could he want good for them? How could he want their eyes to be open? I mean, they're making his life miserable. He's been stuck in jail for two years with nothing to prove that he's guilty. And they're saying false things about him. And they don't even think that he's guilty, and yet they're not doing anything about it. King Agrippa and Festus could have set him free, but they're not doing anything about it. And yet Paul cares less about his freedom and far more about the hearts of the people that he's speaking to. Oh, oh, that you would see the beauty of Christ. Paul wanted to see God rescue them. Let me ask you, is your heart for the lost despite their history? I got to confess, this is convicting to me. When that person pulls out in front of you, driving, the last thing I'm thinking about is God save their souls. <laughs> and we get deeper and we look at decisions that our government makes. I, I have to be honest, far too often my heart is not God rescue them, God save them, God bring them to repentance. It's one of anger, frustration. Have you seen and heard about the billboards that the California's governor, Gavin Newsom, has been putting up. Let me just read what one of these signs say. Need an abortion? California is ready to help. And then this is quoted at the bottom of this billboard. Mark 12, 31. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Let me ask you, what are you feeling when you hear that? To a certain degree, I hope anger. This is blasphemous. How can a man take our Savior's words and use it for the slaughtering of innocent babies? How could he do that? So my prayer is that our anger is towards sin. more so than a man. That we would be broken over a man who needs to repent. Perhaps if you did hear that, you might have heard what John MacArthur said, a pastor in California who responded to the governor in light of this horrific billboard. And this is what he said, and I think this is so important for us to understand. So I want you to listen. Bear with me. It is a long reading, but I think it's such a perfect illustration of what is going on here in Acts 26. In mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12, 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name. 
in favor of butchering unborn infants. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearer. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave, eternal peril. Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of, of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins, what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail for you then? And by then, it will be too late for any remedy or redemption. Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that. That you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. In Psalm 50, verses 22 and 23, after rebuking the wicked for uttering God's words in a profane way, Scripture makes this promise. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me, and he who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and truly, fully in him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ. Ask for forgiveness and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness, as is your duty, instead of undermining it, as has been your pattern. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Brothers and sisters, when you encounter things like this, is your anger towards the fallenness of man? Or do you allow your anger to become personal to where you wish horrible things on what you deserve? Apart from Christ, your name could be on that billboard. Apart from his saving work in your life, you could be the one who is blaspheming our Savior. And here's the thing, is, is John MacArthur here giving a pass on what he's done? No, but, it, but his heart 
is ultimately for his repentance. That's convicting. Far too often, I allow my rage to be towards a person rather than the sinfulness. What is your heart for the lost, despite their history? Today's sermon is no small manner. My, my prayer for each of you is that you would remember who you were apart from Christ. Don't forget your history. Let that humble you, the fact that God has rescued you. That leads us to the second part. Like, do you understand what salvation is? You've sinned against Almighty God, and he has rescued you, not by works, but by grace. Through the shed blood of the innocent, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ on the cross. And in light of that, does your life reflect the salvation that you proclaim? Are you living your life out? Is there fruit? Is there evidence in your life? And lastly, when, when we fully understand what Christ has done, we understand how much we deserve hell and how he has rescued us, does that then lead you to have compassion, to have this broken heart where, yes, you're angry over the sin that's being committed, but you are pleading with the Lord that he would rescue you? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Governor Newsom repented of his sins, what that could do to a place like California? Let me leave you with some action steps that you can put into practice this week. I encourage you to memorize Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. That's what we, that's what John put in the article, or the, his letter to Governor Newsom. I encourage you to, if you, if you question your salvation, to give some time to reading 1 John. It just clarifies salvation. Like, have you been saved? It just kind of ask some questions to lead you to that place to, to where you really ponder that. And third question there, are you saved? Do you look different now than you did when you repented of your sin and placed your faith with him? And then lastly, I encourage you, make a list and pray for the lost. Make sure you're praying for the officials who have oversight and what God could do if, if he rescued you. And be careful, be careful that you don't decide who is worthy of salvation and who is not. Let me invite you to stand as I pray. Father, you have been gracious and merciful. Oh, what great salvation you've given us, Lord, and none of us here can stand here without feeling some kind of conviction this morning. Lord, let that conviction lead to repentance. Let that lead to overjoyment, Lord, knowing that we have failed, that we have screwed up, but yet your Savior's blood is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in our weakness, God. Would you soften our hearts for the lost? You would remind us who we were, and so therefore when we interact with those who are not believers, God, that we would be sensitive to that. Lord, we're not afraid to call out the blaspheming against God, but we're also, our, let our desire be that God would bring them to repentance. God, overwhelm us 
Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your salvation this week that would lead us to live our lives differently this week for the sake of Christ. God, we desperately need you. I thank you for Jesus that carries me through when I don't get it right. God, let our light shine this week to a dying world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.